people of God, at what point in our development from childhood to adulthood do we forget how to play? When, when do we abandon play? For, for most of us as, as children, we could fill our long summer afternoons with nothing but our imagination. Give us a box or a stick and some dirt and we could really we could really go to town. Give us some crayons or some rocks and we could create a whole world of adventure and, and suspense and drama. And if you have some other kids to play with, then, then it's, really, it's really on, right? You could be soldiers and pirates and cowboys or cowgirls or superheroes and animals and whatever. We had the capacity as children to make up things, to enjoy the world through the interface of our imaginations. Play is serious business for children. It's through the medium of play that children develop. It's, it's how they strengthen physically and cognitively and emotionally. Play allows children uh, to the, the opportunity to learn how to work in groups. Play teaches them how to share, how to negotiate, how to resolve conflicts, how to practice decision-making skills. It's, it's critical for human development that we know how to play and play well. But somewhere along the way, as we mature, we forget how to do it. Some of you have probably sat with your child with a, a toy, an action figure or cars or whatever, and it, it gets very dull very quickly. You can, you can kind of keep it up for a while, but, but you lose interest after a while. How, how did we forget and when did we forget how to play? Because as we grow up, we get serious. We, uh, we, we put away all this nonsense and we get to work on what we call the real world. And if, and if we, we let ourselves go too far in, in that direction, we begin to think that play is wasted. Play is inefficient. Play is impractical. Play is not productive, we might say, in a very utilitarian, very cold, very industrial tone. Though, despite our protest and despite our boredom with child's play, we find out that, that play, all play, is not so disposable. Recreation creativity, exercising the imagination in a, in a mature and maturing way, these are all various elements of what it means to be human. This is, this is part of what it means to bear the image of God. Just look at what God has created. Just observe the world, and it's very easy to see that, that we live in a world that is the product of a limitless imagination. God's imagination is as limitless as it is playful. There, there is an excess. There is a wildness. There is a super, uh, superfluous dimension to God's good creation. Let's just take as one example. He doesn't create just one tree. There are 60,000 species of trees that we can identify. And on those trees are thousands of fruits. There are over 7,500 varieties of apple. How many, how many have you tried? How many of you eaten? I don't know, the red one and the green one. Those are two I know. How many varieties of apple do we need? 7,500, apparently. That's how many God says we need. There are 1,700 varieties of banana. And again, I just think, well, there's a banana. What else is there? But 
God has, has created this world that overflows with his imagination and this, this limitless, uh, playful creativity. He creates bizarre animals like the maned wolf. If you've ever seen a picture of one of those, it's a, it's a wolf with these crazy long legs. He creates animals like the naked mole rat, which looks exactly like it sounds. The, the name is the description of the naked mole rat. He creates the blobfish and the axolotl. Not only does he create a world that abounds with this diverse life, but, but the seasons and the weather keeps us on our toes as well. He could have made just one kind of day for the whole earth, just sunny in 72, and that's the way it is all over the whole world. But, but he didn't. We have hot days and cold days. We have dreary days and sweet spring days. And this is what he's built into his creation. We learn that that's, that's what life is like. Life uh, has, has different stages and different phases. And God is, God is constantly pushing us through these different, these different phases of what it means to be human and what it means to live in the world. And that if today is dreary and dark, well, well spring is coming sooner or later. It's coming. And we are taught and we're discipled through creation. It's this... It's this excess of creation that, that God has just poured out upon us that, that reveals to us this dimension of levity in God's creation. There is a levity in God's creative work. And if we're to be like God, if we're to be godly, that's, that's what it, godly means is to be like God, then it stands that you and I are to possess a lightheartedness as well. A kind of playfulness is at the heart of every healthy relationship. And when you start to see relationships break down, one of the first casualties of a broken relationship is levity. Humor goes right out the window when a relationship is tense and difficult and awkward. And so when you're in this awkward, tough, broken relationship, you can't joke anymore. You can't laugh together. But, but God's relationship to his children is not characterized by this severe, humorless gloom. Our relationship to God is not to be stilted or awkward. Zephaniah, the prophet, tells us that God rejoices over us. He delights in us with singing. God sings over us. We are his joy. And so God's playfulness that, that comes through his creativity is, is a model for us. And if we're like him, our creativity must have room for the silly, the light, the joyful. He is a God, our God is the God, who stops after six days of work and rests to enjoy his works. And if, and if we're like him, we will put a premium on stopping our work to rest and enjoy the fruits of our labor. This kind of resting, this kind of play in a mature way, in a, in, in a godly way, is what we call festivity. God has built festivity into our identity as worshipers. In fact, he requires it. He requires his people to stop every week, to gather and to rejoice together and to enjoy each other and to eat together in his presence. He requires it. There's, you don't have a choice. If you're a Christian, this is what you do. This is what he requires. And this is what we've aimed to do, our, our congregations have aimed to do this weekend. We have, we have aimed at festivity, and there's, there's more coming this afternoon. We do this because, number one, it's the Lord's Day, and that's what you do every 
Lord's Day, right? I mean, the Lord's Day is not a time to fast. It's not a time to uh, feel sorry for yourself. It's, it's a time to get together and rejoice in who God is and, and in the church. But in addition to be th- this being the Lord's Day, this is also one of the biggest feast days on the church calendar. This is the Feast of Pentecost, where we remember, as Jacob read earlier from Acts 2, we remember how the, the Holy Spirit was poured out on those who followed Jesus just 10 days after his ascension. Just as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church and how the church was emboldened, encouraged, comforted, empowered by the Holy Spirit. How the Holy Spirit propelled them to fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave them. And we see in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost how the Holy Spirit filled them up. Just as God breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. So now the Spirit breathes into the church the breath of life. And as their lungs fill up with the breath of the Holy Spirit, they then exhale the gospel to the nations. They glorify the name of Jesus before all men. They speak in the tongues of all the nations represented there in Jerusalem that day, which that tongue speaking had a twofold purpose. First, it was a sign of judgment upon Israel. Now, Israel, if you want to hear the gospel, you're not going to hear it in Hebrew. You've got to learn the languages of the nations. You've got to hear the languages of the, of the Greeks and the, the, the Egyptians and the others gathered there that day. So that the New Testament's all written in Greek. It's not written in Hebrew, and that's, that's judgment on Israel. It's not only judgment, but it's also a glimpse into the way the gospel's eventually going to go out to all these nations. As that rushing mighty wind of God's Holy Spirit blows them to all corners of the earth. And so today as we reflect on this glorious event, this wonderful thing together, I want to consider for just a few minutes... What kind of people are produced by this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit? The people who enjoy the life of the Holy Spirit, what kind of people are they? Now, I'll give you my answer right off the bat, and then we'll work work back to it. My answer to that question is that the Spirit-filled people, the people of life, the church, are a people of uncontainable joy a people of unmitigated delight in God's good creation, a people who express that gratitude continuously through a life of thanksgiving, a life of play, a life of creativity, a life of festivity. In the Old Covenant, God set at the center of society, he set a sanctuary. First it was the tabernacle, and then later with Solomon it was the temple. This this center of their society, this temple was a locus of festivity. It was the place of drawing near to God, of of cleansing, of forgiveness, of renewing the covenant. It was also the center of creativity. The temple's music and the temple's art, the glory of the architecture of the temple stood at the heart of Israel's identity as a kingdom of priests. And a central component of the worship that took place there at the temple, a central component was feasting before God. At God's house, the temple was the point of connection between heaven and earth. It's where God camped among his people. And he camped among them so that they would be like him. He shows them what he's like and what he loves and what he enjoys. And as they draw near to him, they become like him. And so what happens on the day of Pentecost is that the church is identified by God as the new temple. 
The church is now where we draw near to God, where we fellowship with Him, where we come before His presence, where we're cleansed, where we feast with Him. The church is the new center of festivity. It's the new center of play, imagination, song, art. It's, it's the center of culture in the world. Even though nobody thinks of it that way, right? This is, this is crazy talk outside of this room. Nobody would, nobody would take me seriously. No one thinks, yeah, man, the church, that's, that's really where it's going on, man. If you want to be part of the, the cutting edge of society, you need to be part of the church. Nobody says that. Nobody says, yeah, the church has more fun than anybody. I mean, especially those Presbyterians. They are party animals. They love to have a party. Nobody says that. Nobody, because because we, haven't, we haven't embodied it. We don't, we don't think this way. We've adopted this very narrow, very reductionistic, very minimalistic approach to the Bible and to the Trinity and to worship. We've just kind of said, what's the bare minimum we can get away with? Where, where, where's the box I can check just to get this off my conscience for the week? Let me just do that. And, and, and that's how we've defined the life of the church, when in fact, once upon a time, it was the church that was the repository of music and art and learning and science and culture and life. The church set the calendar for the whole Western world. And, and all of this wasn't a distraction from her mission. It was a part of her mission. It was in, in integral to her mission. So we've got our work cut out for us to uh, recover that position. So I want to point out some things from our scripture readings today both the reading from Acts and from Psalm 104 that Jacob read, and then also from John 16 that I read a few minutes ago, as we, as we reflect on this role of the Holy Spirit in making us a kind of people who are at the center of culture, at the center of society, uh, uh, primarily a worshiping festal people, a people who play, who, who are creative, and, and who spill out into the world all these gifts of the, of the Holy Spirit. In our gospel reading in John chapter 16, we're right in the middle of that long section of Jesus' final instructions to his apostles. It, it, back in chapter 14 is where he starts, and he says, I'm going to depart from you, um, but I'm not going to leave you all by yourself. I'm going to leave you alone. I'm going to send my spirit, and the spirit is going to confirm my words to you. He's going to speak my words. He's going to, in fact, empower you to do even greater things than, than I've done. Jesus spent his time around Galilee, and then he went to Jerusalem, a very small area. But Jesus says, you're going to go in the power of the spirit to the ends of the earth. You're going to do much bigger things in my absence. And the spirit is going to enable you to do the father's will. He's going to be a helper. He's going to be a teacher. He's going to instruct you in my words and help you draw connections between the Hebrew scriptures and the gospel and what I'm doing in the world. He's going to uh, guide them into all truth, Jesus says. And then Jesus talks about another important work of the spirit, and that's the spirit's office of bringing joy and peace and comfort. Jesus says the Spirit will bring, bring rest in the knowledge that what God has done through Jesus is good and right and life-giving. So Jesus says this. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. If you loved me, you would rejoice to see me going to my Father. And later on in the same discussion, Jesus says, these things have I spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. The Spirit is coming to fill up your joy in Jesus. 
And then in chapter 16, where we picked up reading, Jesus talks about some of the hardships that are coming. Jesus himself is going to be mistreated. He's going to be abused. And then, and then he says, you, my disciples, you are going to be mistreated. You are going to be abused. And Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you that you're going to weep and you're going to lament, but the world will be rejoicing. The world is going to be laughing while you're weeping. And you will be sorrowful, but, Jesus says, your sorrow will be turned to joy. Jesus gives an illustration of a woman in labor, a woman in childbirth who goes through the pain of bringing a child into the world, but who forgets all her anguish when she holds her baby. And Jesus says, therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And he concludes with this. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And then at that point is where we go into chapter 17, where Jesus begins that high priestly prayer that y'all are all familiar with, where he asks the Father to impart the life of the Trinity to his people, that, that just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has, have dwelt eternally in joy and adoration and harmony. So Jesus is praying that the people he is saving would also share in the life, in the happiness, in the blessing, in the peace and joy of the Godhead. And it's through the Spirit that we have access to the life of the Trinity. Now, all the way throughout this section and all this teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples, he puts an unmistakable emphasis on real joy and real peace. As he promises the coming of the Holy Spirit, everything he says is shot through with this message of comfort and peace and joy and delight. A deep current of happiness that, that is given by the Spirit is sustained in the face of persecution and tribulation and even martyrdom. The joy remains. In Revelation 14 and 15, the martyrs are singing before their martyrdom. And they're singing after their martyrdom. Just, they just keep on singing. You can't stop them. And that's the kind of joy and that's the kind of presence uh, that the Holy Spirit gives them. Yeah, the sorrow is real. Yes, it's real. The hurt is real. It's acutely painful. But in some ways, the joy that the Holy Spirit gives us burns brighter even the face in the face of this pain. So uh, these promises that Jesus makes in regard to the Holy Spirit, promises that Jesus makes in John's Gospel are realized in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost where God is lighting a fire on his new altar at his new temple, the church. You know, throughout history, every time God establishes a sanctuary, every time he establishes a place of worship, he anoints the place, he sanctions it with the presence of his fire. Remember when Abraham presented his sacrifices before God, he, he cut them up and he placed them and arranged them on the ground. What happened? The smoking pot and the flaming torch passed through the pieces. God affirmed his covenant with Abraham and anointed Abraham's sacrifice with his fire. God's fire rested over the tabernacle in the wilderness. God lit the sacrifice on the altar at Solomon's temple when Solomon's temple was dedicated. So whenever there's a, a sanctuary, whenever there's an altar that needs to be affirmed and sanctioned by God, God lights it with his fire. So what happens on the day of Pentecost? Well, 
uh, uh, now, on the day of Pentecost, there's a new temple. There's a new altar. And to signify this, God's flame appears again. Now it's on everybody's heads. The altar is lit. These new living sacrifices are sanctioned. They're affirmed. They're accepted by God. And the rushing mighty wind of the Spirit blows through. And what is the result of all this? What is the result of God affirming the church as his new temple? What happens? Well, Jesus promised back in John 16 that the Spirit would bring peace and comfort and joy and truth. He'd bring conviction of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. And that's exactly what happens on the day of Pentecost. There's amazement and wonder at the preaching of the gospel in all the languages of the world. The, The apostles are so animated and so elated on this day as they bring people the news. Others accuse them of being drunk. No one believed that you could be that happy outside of being drunk. And Peter has that funny statement, hey, it's, it's only the third hour of the day. You wait, wait till later. You'll see us really drunk. <laughs> Through the spirit-filled preaching of Peter, people are convicted. They're brought to repentance. They're led into truth by the spirit of truth. And the day ends with people gladly receiving the word, being baptized, and then continuing daily in one accord, breaking bread from house to house, eating their food in gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Spirit does exactly what Jesus said he would do on the day of Pentecost. He illuminates, he convicts, he guides, he empowers, and at the end of it all, what's at the end of the day? Festivity. Celebration, people are sharing food and sharing their lives and sharing their gifts in this community of feasting. This is the community that the Holy Spirit creates. This is the new temple. This is what it looks like. When you total up all the operations of God's Holy Spirit and you get down to the very end of the ledger and you click some, what's at the bottom? What's in that big cell? What's in the line at the bottom of that? It's a community of people resting in God's good gifts together and sharing them with thanksgiving. That's what's at the end of the Holy Spirit's work in the world. This is the business that the Holy Spirit has always been about. He has been the person of the Trinity engaged with creation. The Spirit's job is to make the world beautiful and lovely and orderly. And we see this from the very first page of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, at creation, it's the Spirit of God who's hovering over the waters. He's moving and forming and shaping the world, bringing order out of chaos, pushing back the darkness, pushing back the gloom and the chaos. And the Spirit of God hovers in the same way over Israel in the wilderness. That's a new creation. And so the Spirit is there again, blowing back the waters of the Red Sea, giving birth to a new nation, superintending this new creation. The Spirit of God hovers over Jesus like a dove over the waters of his baptism. Now, on, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is blowing and hovering over water yet again, over the water of 3,000 baptisms this day, giving birth yet again to a new world, a new creation. And that same creative, brooding, loving, energizing, empowering Spirit, that same Spirit hovers over the church now. This creative power of the Spirit is what we sing about in Psalm 104, which we heard read earlier. We read that that God sends forth his spirit upon his creation to renew the face of the earth. At the end of Psalm 104, around uh, verse 21, um, O Lord, let me see, where am I? 27, I'm sorry. These all wait for you. 
that you may give them their food in due season. What you give to them, they gather in. You open your hand, they're filled with good. You hide your face, they're troubled. You take away their breath. You take away their spirit. You take away their life. They die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit. They are created and you renew the face of the earth. Who is the... Who is the member of the Godhead responsible for renewing the face of the earth? It's God's Holy Spirit. Psalm 104 says this. We also read that he makes his angels spirits. He makes his ministers a flame of fire, especially appropriate on Pentecost Sunday to remind ourselves of that, that that we are these, these flames of fire and the flames, the tongues of fire that were on the heads of the apostles on the day of Pentecost remain. We, we are the, the people full of the fire of the Holy Spirit. He feeds and waters the earth. Let me pick up from verse 10. He sends the springs into the valleys. The, they flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. This psalm pushes back against all pragmatism, all miserliness, all reductionism. Who cares about the wild donkeys and whether they're thirsty or not? God says through the psalmist, the wild donkeys quench their thirst by the rivers and the streams that you provide for them. Did you wake up this morning caring about whether the wild donkeys had a drink today? Do you care they're thirsty? Who cares about this? God does. And he, and he cares for them in such a way that he creates wandering creeks so they can drink. The birds have homes. Birds have homes. And they sing their praises of gratitude in their songs to their creator. The psalmist says the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. The earth rests in the works of the Holy Spirit. The creation rejoices in and soaks up the works of the Holy Spirit. And then he says he makes grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for man. And what does man get? Wine that makes his heart glad, oil that makes his face shine, bread which strengthens his heart. God gives us wonderful, good-smelling, good-tasting, fulfilling, hearty things, robust things to take in and soak up and enjoy. God could have created you to get your energy through photosynthesis. You could be green, and you could just walk out into the sun when you're hungry, and you could just soak up the sun's rays. He could have created you that way, but he didn't. He didn't create you that way. He could have created you in such a way where you just needed this one nutrient, just this one, you know, protein or something to get by on. And then, you know, it just comes in a form like some kind of gray porridge that you just kind of slurp down once a day. And that's that's your sustenance, that's your strength. And you're good and you're fine. That's not how God created you. God created you in such a way that you could receive and enjoy all kinds of good things to taste and smell and combine in different ways and cook them using different methods, a hundred different ways, and and to love the world that he has made by eating it. Isn't that funny? That we enjoy creation by eating it. We take dominion over it by eating it, taking it into ourselves. So God, by his Holy Spirit, creates a world that we can enjoy, that we can consume. And he wants us to experience it and give thanks for it by consuming it. We don't enjoy it by pushing ourselves away from the table or by putting our hand over our glass and saying, no, I'm, I'm good. I don't, I don't need God's blessings now or ever. 
That's not how we, that's not how we rejoice. That's, that's not how we give thanks. We do it by saying, oh boy, let me try that thing. And let me try this other thing. I wonder what that tastes like. Boy, that looks good. Let me try some of that. And I really want one of those. I joke with my kids when we go to the zoo. I say, I wonder what that tastes like. <laughs> I bet he tastes good, doesn't he? But the truth is, God really wants you to enjoy his creation. That's why he made it. Uh, I, love, I love Psalm 104. Let's, let's pick up verse 16. The trees of Yahweh are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. The donkey has his stream. The bird has his tree. The, the goats have his hills. The badger has his cliffs. And you get your wine and you get your oil and you get your bread. The next section always captures my imagination. Verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are all your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great. There the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. What is the Leviathan? Is it a big whale? Is it a giant squid? Is a Loch Ness monster. We don't know what the Leviathan is. It must be some kind of big sea creature that we might be horrified to see if we're in a little kayak. You know, we would be terrified by that. But, but the psalmist says God made that creature and put him in the deepest part of the ocean to play. To play. Just have fun. Treating the boats like bath toys. You know, just to, just to have fun. This is, this is our God that, that makes creatures uh, to play. Big, horrible, ugly, scary creatures that play. It's fascinating and wonderful and amazing. And so we too, you and I, rejoice in the good gifts of the Holy Spirit. We rejoice in the Holy Spirit by playing in the creation that he has given us. We do this by active, joyful engagement with the world. Another word for that is festivity. We know that God is dead serious about festivity because he gave Israel these three great feasts. He gave them Passover, he gave them Pentecost, he gave them tabernacles. Two of those feasts were a week long. One was seven days, one was eight days. And when these festivals come up on the calendar, everybody has to stop and celebrate. No exceptions. You say, well, I've got to go to work. No, you don't. Not this week. You ain't working this week. Well, I've got this other thing. No, you don't. It's Pentecost. It's tabernacles. It's Passover. This is the schedule. And in addition to these three great feasts, there was the weekly Sabbath and the monthly festival of the new moon. Every seven years was a Sabbath year. Every seven of sevens, you have that big jubilee year. And the whole calendar is full of these parties and opportunities to rejoice and remember God's goodness. Later on, Israel added to the calendar Purim. And they added Hanukkah. How do we know that we're allowed to celebrate Easter as the church? Well, God's people were able to add to their calendar. How do we know that we can celebrate Pentecost and Trinity Sunday and, and the other great feast days of the calendar? Well, Israel could do this, and Jesus grew up in this culture and celebrated these same days. In addition to these, they had all the other kinds of regional and village celebrations, sheep shearing festivals that we read about, harvest festivals, that, that thing they did in Shiloh where all the girls danced around the fire and the sons of Benjamin came out and grabbed a wife. Uh, that thing, whatever that was. They had that as well. Israel's whole year was filled with festivals. 
So you didn't have time to sit around and feel sorry for yourself. There was always something to rejoice in and some great feast day to look forward to. In Israel, between family celebrations and weddings and anniversaries and birthdays and regional celebrations and annual festivals and Sabbath feast days, somebody somewhere was celebrating every day for some reason or another. Proverbs 15:15 says this, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. And at the heart of all this festivity sat the sanctuary, the temple, the place of covenant renewal, the place where man met with God and learned what it was like to be like God, to grow in godliness. The temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations. The, the happiness and obedience to God found at the temple was to flow out to water the whole earth. And in this way, you take dominion over the world through festivity. And all this All of this stuff is in the Old Covenant, which we think of. We think of the Old Covenant as onerous and miserable and difficult and impossible to live under. We think that's not true at all, but that's what we think. But if that was true under the Old Covenant, what's it like in the New Covenant? Because on Pentecost, the temple is replaced with the church. And under the New Covenant, we don't have a retraction. We don't have a shrinking back. We don't have stricter limitations. Under the new covenant, everything is expanded. Everything is more glorious. So what happens to the festival calendar and our duties to rejoice and to bring the world into that rejoicing? What happens? Well, it's expanded. It's elevated. It's bigger than it ever was under the old covenant. Because now you and I are saints. We're all priests. We all have sanctuary access. There aren't layers of separation between priest and laity, dividing walls between Jew and Gentile. We all have been brought near in order to bring the world and the nations near to God in his sanctuary. So, people of God, today, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, you are the temple of God and the Spirit dwells in you. Now, later he uses... The same language in an individual sense. He says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So when you hear, yeah, I, I have the Holy Spirit in me. Well, that's true. But in 1 Corinthians 3, he uses a different, he's using different words. He says, you all. This is, this is second person plural. In the South, we have a second person plural. It's y'all. Y'all are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in y'all. All y'all. To be emphatic, all y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Today, it is as if tongues of fire are on your heads. God says, this is my sanctuary, and these are the ones who have access to my presence. God has affirmed his church as the place where his blessing and his pleasure rests. And if you want to know him, and if you want to draw near to him, there's no other place on earth. There's no other way. There's no other access to Christ, who God has put over the head of all things. There's no other, no other access to the head, but through the body of Christ. There's no other way. And he has sent his Holy Spirit to us to guide us into truth, so that we would light the way for all nations, that the church would be the access point for all men to draw into union and communion with the triune God. This is what Pentecost does. Now, I've wanted to draw your attention to all the levity and the joy and the playfulness, all the festivity that comes with being the spirit-filled people, the new temple. But I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't point out what the whole what, what God's 
son, what Jesus says in our gospel reading, what he says about conflict with the world of unbelief. In fact, that's the foundation of everything that he says in 16. That, that he's sending the Spirit because we're in conflict. We, we are facing uh, uh, persecution. We're, we, we've got this warfare, this ongoing warfare with the world and the flesh and the devil. So remember that the table of festivity that he spreads for us is spread in the presence of our enemies. That's what Psalm 23 says. He spreads a table in the presence of our enemies. And so the Spirit fills us and equips us in all these ways so that we may fight, so that we may fight joyfully, so that we may fight winsomely, so we may fight you know, with a turkey leg in our hand, if that's necessary, but that we might fight joyfully, but fight indeed and fight all the same. When the Spirit filled Samson, what did Samson do? He killed a thousand Philistines. When the Spirit lit on Jesus at his baptism, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to go do battle with Satan. One of the things you do when you're filled with the Spirit in the Bible is you go out in the Spirit's strength and you pick a fight with God's enemies. That's what you do if you're Spirit-filled. So the church, filled with the Spirit on Pentecost, goes out and takes the fight to the temple authorities and takes the fight to those in charge of the old world that's passing away. Idolaters, all manners of pagans. So you, spirit-filled people of God, you are called to fight. To fight against your sins in the power of the Holy Spirit and to go out claiming territory, conquering territory in the name of Jesus. And you do this with great, deep, abiding joy. Because one of the most powerful weapons in our arsenal, a gift of the Spirit for our warfare, is our deep, abiding happiness in Jesus. We are the army that sings and worships our way to victory. So, child of God, don't resist it. Don't shrink back. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by wanting to stay on the outskirts. Maybe stay on the outside looking in. Don't, don't hang out around the edges. Don't be cautious. There's no, there's no reason to be fearful. Come sit down at the table. Come out and play. Join the great feast. Jump in with both feet. No reservations because you, people of God, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the center of festivity and joy for the whole world. Live like it. Let's pray. Father, as you sent your Holy Spirit to anoint your church with your power, to anoint your church with your presence, your your comfort, so fill us now as your people. Bind us together. Give us courage and glorify your name through us. Cause us to rejoice in your faithful Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.